Our Father, we want to know you better through our study and time in the Word and our time of listening. Uh, We ask, God, that your Holy Spirit who is here would move in our hearts. Uh, Teach us. Be our teacher this morning. Um, Not my words, not me, but the Holy Spirit of God that he might use um, this experience and this act of teaching and looking at the Word that we might understand what you have for us, Lord. So we want to know you better, and we ask for your help to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A husband and wife went to the mall. A mall is a building (laughs) with a lot of shops in it and one roof over it. Uh, A husband and wife went to the mall to do some Christmas shopping. Somewhere during the day, with all the hustle and bustle, they got separated from one another. And because it was a busy day for the couple, the wife called her husband on the phone to quickly find out where he was. Hello, he answered. Honey, where are you, she said. You know we have a very full day. Oh, yes, dear, I I know. Well, do you remember that little shop that we went into years ago where you fell in love with that diamond bracelet? I couldn't afford it at the time, but I told you that I would get it for you someday. The woman choked up and replied, Yes, I I remember that shop. Well, I'm in the gun shop next to that one, he said. (laughs) Right? Sermon over. You know, there's there's marriage right there, lived out in the mall. So maybe it's good that we don't have one here to fall into that trap. So we're all taking our medicine here as we kind of go through this series on marriage and uh, all learning, all being convicted to some degree or another. So we want to pause for a little humor in this too. Um, We do live in a time where seemingly marriage is under siege, uh, where divorce rates continue to be high, where uh, people are taking longer to enter into marriage, which creates its own uh, sets of issues, uh, where less and less young people are choosing to be married. And whereas we've seen just recently, uh, within the last couple of years, the Supreme Court uh, redefining the traditional understanding of marriage, as though that were their prerogative to do. Uh, And so I think there are a lot of people today asking the question, are we experiencing the end of marriage, or at least the end of marriage as we know it? And sort of in looking at that question, what we are trying to do as a church is to give our attention to what God's end of marriage is. In other words, what is his purpose, his intent, his design, his telos, his trajectory? What is God's strategy with this thing? In other words, what has God made and what is he doing with it? And so we're doing this by looking at about six questions. We looked at two last week. Last week we asked the question, what is marriage? And who is it for? And today, or in order to answer those questions, I I proposed a working definition to kind of start us, and we'll continue with this definition, but it was this, and it's in your handout in your notes this morning, that marriage essentially is a covenant, a covenant of self-giving, which is made in three directions. That is, it's made to God, made to one another, and then made to the community. And it's entered into to achieve a God-ordained purpose. And it's the second part of the latter half of this definition that I'm going to give my attention to uh, this morning, this question of purpose. What is this God-ordained purpose? And so today we're going to ask two questions. The first is, what is the purpose of marriage? 
And the corollary to that is, therefore, what are its enemies? And of course, these go together, and you'll see a little bit of symmetry in the notes, the questions that are asked, the purpose, and how the enemies um, are actually directed right at those purposes. So the first question, what is the purpose of marriage? And I'm going to answer this kind of by starting from the inside out. I want to talk about the dynamic within the marriage relationship that God desires, that he wants us to work towards, and then show how through that dynamic and the aspect of the relationship, God achieves other purposes, broader purposes. And so one of the purposes of marriage, again, from the inside out, is for the couple to both form and facilitate oneness. To form and to facilitate oneness. And we see this here in Genesis 2, 22 through 25. And this is a passage we've come to a bunch and we'll just keep coming to it. This is the seminal passage on marriage which Jesus returns to, which the Apostle Paul returns to. And it instructs us an awful lot. It says this, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he formed, and he, excuse me, he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. There's part of this oneness, united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Here's the other part. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, shockingly, the word here, the Hebrew word for one, do you know what it means? means one, you know, who knew, right? It, it means a value of one. Uh, it, it, it means a singular unit. Uh, and so this passage really shows us what we might call the divine math of marriage, that one plus one equals one. And that is what God is doing in a marriage, That is the relational goal that we would form a new unit, a new one. Not married singles who live two parallel lives that just kind of orbit around one another. But a single life that is lived together. A single life that is lived together. The best way I can think of to illustrate this, and I've used this illustration probably a dozen times. So if you don't have it by now, you either weren't listening or you might not have been here. Maybe you should increase your attendance. But I'm going to use it again because it's the, best, it's the best way I can think to illustrate this. A number of years ago, I was building a woodshed. Have I mentioned this before? Oh, good. You got it. Well, let's keep going and see how well you've got it. <coughs> and I needed this beam to carry about a 16-foot span. And so I sought some advice on how to do this. And my instinct was just get one really stout piece of lumber, right? Bigger is better and stronger. Just get one really good piece of lumber. And in, and in asking folks about it, the advice I got back was, no, get, get two boards and nail them together, and that will actually be a stronger beam. Well, that was contrary to my thinking, so I questioned, and the response came back. The reason is that any single board, any big piece of dimensional lumber will have an imperfection in it somewhere, and that weak spot will run all the way through the board. But when you take two boards and you adhere them together, and they become one board, it's the crisscrossing grain of these two boards that shore up the the weaknesses of, of one on its own. And it's so it's stronger. The strengths of one strengthen uh, the weakness of the other. And that is oneness. That is just the best picture I can think of, of oneness, of what God is trying to do 
with a husband and a wife to make them one, that our two lives adhered together strengthen us more than any solitary life, no matter how strong that solitary life is. And this purpose or this pursuit of oneness is so important that the Bible says that we are to leave our families of origin, our parents. We leave them so that we might cleave to, cling to, adhere to our spouse. Uh, and that's really shocking when you think about it. This, this home, this place where we have been birthed and grown and nurtured and where we have matured, hopefully, we are to leave it behind for a new home to create something new. I still remember going to Amy's dad, Gary Barrett, and meeting with him to ask for his blessing that I could marry his daughter. And um, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, it still makes me nervous to think about it today. And I've already done this. You know, this was 20 years ago. And I still, uh, it was terrifying. He's a terrifying guy to start with. But it was terrifying to ask him this question. And I, uh, I really think I understood what I was asking him and so sobered by that. Because I was going to this man and saying, I am ready to assume responsibility for your daughter. What you have started, what you have done in nurturing and raising this one and investing and protecting and caring for her, I'm ready to take on and carry through to the end of our lives together. And that is a sobering thing to do. And I do want to tell you, young men, if you're here in the room, and your heart's affections are drawn towards one, and you're thinking, oh, this would be great, I want to marry them. I just want to tell you, that's a good thing, but it's not just this thin little thing. You'd better get your life together. (laughs) You'd better be prepared to go to a father and say, what you have started, I will finish, I will complete. That's what you're asking. And so I would tell you, young men, man up before you uh, get to that point. When Amy and I moved to Fairbanks, we really left our families behind, mine in California and hers in in Washington State, and that was really difficult, especially with uh, the first grandbaby on both sides. Aiden was just about three weeks when we came up here and visited, and six weeks when, or what was it, three months when we moved up here, and uh, it was hard. And when we made that journey, even though it was hard, it was good for us as a couple, Because it really made us depend upon one another in a way that we might not have done if we had lots of family around us. And so it strengthened us as a a family unit. So I can really feel the significance of what this passage is saying about leaving a family and becoming a unit. We experienced that, and, and you all graciously walked that out with us, really indebted to many of you for your encouragement in our lives. I think there's a popular line of thinking or even skepticism in our culture today, either with non-Christians or even young Christians, which is, it goes something like this. Why do we need to be married to define our love for one another? Why a ceremony or a license or rings or other people telling us what is or isn't our love or what it ought to look like? That's the skepticism of our culture and the answer, the, the reason that we have things like rings and ceremonies and, uh, and, and we have licenses and we gather people together as witnesses is because these things are all instruments of covenant making. And that is what a marriage is. 
simply having affectionate feelings for one another and sharing those within a household by living together is only a contract at best. But marriage is a covenant. A contract is something we enter into, we negotiate about it, it can be terminated when we don't like the, re- the way things are going. It's thin. It's not lasting. It can be changed. But covenants are enduring. And that is the difference between the two. And so oneness is not just togetherness. It's not just proximity. It is what God is doing in marriage. And that's why cohabitating is so thin and comes up so short of what God is really doing. Um, statistically speaking, couples that, uh, that simply live together, their relationship lasts an average of 19 months in contrast to covenant marriage. And statistically speaking, marriages that begin with cohabitation are less likely to endure than those that don't. Um, just, just some um, pragmatic statistics there. Now, oneness, I think, is, I mean, I've used the word a bunch. I'm trying to paint a bit of a picture of it, but I think it's really hard to show what it is and what it looks like in life, if I'm honest with you. So I'm going to do the very best I can here to give you a couple examples of how it's expressed, how it's exercised in relationship. It's expressed in joint decision-making. We decide together. It's expressed in giving deference one to another, uh, making your convictions important to me and not demanding my own way. It's, It's expressed in taking on one another's values, not just holding my own and giving you know, credence to that. Yeah, sure, you hold yours too. But since we are a one, we hold values together. I hold yours, and I'm hoping you will hold mine. It's surrendering our wants for the other person's needs and even feeling their wants and needs as much as we would feel our own. It's not just duty. We align our heart's emotions with those things as well. We seek to enter into the experiences of the other person and their world, and we do that tirelessly through communication, always, always striving for good communication, which is so difficult and elusive uh, between genders, uh, challenging. And one of the ways we go about this is by asking questions and not just looking for logistical answers, but we listen attentively and tirelessly looking for understanding. These are the ways that oneness is exercised and and expressed. If I could put it in one synthesis, I would say this. Oneness is constantly putting to death the thoughts of I and instead thinking with the mindset of we. Putting to death the thoughts of I and taking on the mindset of we. Uh, Again, it's one of those things. Oneness is one of those things that you know it when you see it. You may recognize it when you experience it. But to articulate it and to lead others to it is, uh, I think, quite a challenge. The second point here, second purpose of marriage is to know what it is to be naked and not ashamed. Well, where's Eric going with this? Hang in there. Part of what this means, uh, of, it means that we would be knowing of one another and yet loving that we would really know one another and love each other anyways. Naked and not ashamed describes the ability to be vulnerable with each other and be safe. Uh, I would tell you this. I think we can, we can all uh, relate to this, that there are very few people in our lives 
that we trust all of ourselves with, if you know what I mean. There may be some people that you, you go to for business questions or some for automotive questions or some for relationship or some for finances or, you know, whatever. We kind of, most of us, I think, parcel out our lives to different peoples in the community whom we trust. But there's very few people that we trust with all of us. But our spouse is to be that person, one that we can entrust our whole selves to. I would say we cannot, nor should we try to, hide from our spouse. Even if you think you're hiding something, especially men, I guarantee your wife is aware. They're way more intuitive than we are. Uh, So it's not a place we hide. It's a place where we can be completely known and yet loved and be safe. Um, And I would tell you this too. The reason, one of the reasons marriage is a covenant is because we need the safety of a continuing covenant relationship to allow us to be truly ourselves and safely ourselves. And this requires huge amounts of grace. Uh, oftentimes in the relationship, it means that we're going to have to simply accept that this is how our spouse is. Not as we would have designed them if we had been consulted. <laughs> Nevertheless, this is how they are. And it doesn't mean that we tolerate sin, but our spouses, all of us, have uh, inherent weaknesses. We have flaws. And it's in the safety of marriage that we move towards maturation, towards God's design. Um, So let me try to illustrate this with one of Amy's real weaknesses. How about that? No, I won't do that. (laughs) How about if I use my own? Be a little safer. Um, One of my, I mean sincerely, one of my real weaknesses as a person uh, is I struggle with um, calendars and scheduling and dates and times. And I'm, anybody who knows me really well, those of you that you know, this is not an exercise of false modesty here. I'm really bad at it. Uh, I'm much more of a conceptual thinker. I can read a book and remember the whole concept of the author's point, where it was on the page, what I wrote next to it, and come back to it years later and find it and retrieve it. And that's really easy for me. But to talk with my wife about dropping Eleanor off at the concert on Thursday, I'm in serious trouble. There's a hole in my head where that part should have been, you know? And, um, and what's even worse is that I, I'll be agreeable when we talk about it. Like, I'd be happy to do that. Love to. That'd be great. But, you know, being congenial about it doesn't get it done. You actually have to do it is the thing. I, I sincerely struggle with this. And this was something that didn't take long to show up in marriage. And I would just tell you that this is an area where my wife has been so gracious to me and accepting of who I am. And she is simp- early on, she simply recognized, instead of holding this against me and being constantly angry, which she could have our whole lives, right? She just recognized, Eric's not trying to just, you know, be a knucklehead and mess with my life. It's not that he's being insensitive. This is just an area of his weakness. It means we have to talk differently. It means, right, like right now, what we do is Sunday nights, tonight we'll do this again, we sit down with our phones out and we go through our calendar together very, very methodically, all of the steps that need to happen for the week so that I can meet the expectations of my family. And, and I have to be very overt about that because it doesn't come naturally. But wh- what I'm trying to say is my wife was gracious and understanding with what 
with an area of my weakness. And this is something we have to do in our relationships. We just have to be um, sometimes accepting, unconditionally loving. I love what Tim Keller has said about this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I have in your notes, which if I'm, I'm going to quote him frequently in this series because it's the single best book on marriage I've ever read. That's my highest endorsement. But he says this, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense and humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. And this is part of what it means to be naked and not ashamed. It means that we are vulnerable with our true selves and yet secure in one another's unconditional love. Now, these phrases are also not just a metaphor, okay? I don't want to pull the literacy or the, the literal aspect of uh, literal meaning out of these phrases either. Naked and not ashamed, becoming, and, becoming one flesh. Uh, these phrases refer specifically to the intimate act of marriage. They refer to sexual intercourse. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of talking about that because I don't think that's necessarily what our culture needs to hear today. More what I think our culture needs to hear today is that physical intimacy is just the overflow of relational intimacy. And I love the way Keller addresses this in his book when he speaks about even sort of the, uh, the clumsy early uh, days and weeks and years of their marriage uh, with regard to intimacy. He says, All we were trying to do was tenderly express with our bodies the oneness we had first begun feeling as friends and which then grew stronger and deeper as we fell in love. What is so important to understand is physical intimacy is just the expression of prior relational intimacy. If I could put it a different way, I would say men and women, husbands and wives, I mean husbands and wives, If you want to have better sexual intimacy in your marriage, give your attention to your relational intimacy. More often than not, that's where it needs to be addressed. Third purpose of marriage, to enjoy meaningful companionship. Uh, Genesis 2.18, very familiar passage. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, it says, There was a man all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. These passages speak about the difficulty of being or feeling alone. Uh, I think companionship is one of the easiest things to see within a marriage that's desirable. 
I mean, we can all just go to the coffee house and look at the little cafe table over across the way and see a couple sitting close and holding hands, sharing a cookie and laughing and giggling. And we can sit there and go, how annoying, you know? <laughs> and what we're really saying is, it's annoying because that looks great and I wish I had that. Whether we're married or whether we're single, we can still say that. Um, Genesis teaches us, Ecclesiastes teaches us, we weren't meant to be alone and that a shared life is the best life. Um, and we see this expressed even in the nature, of, uh, in the triune nature of God. Uh, this companionship that is expressed in a marital relationship, this same kind of companionship, fellowship, unity, we see in, in the triune God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in fellowship with one another presently and in eternity in the past. And so part of what marriage is, is reflecting this community that God has in himself and that we would see that here on earth as well. It's a tangible expression on earth of what is happening in heaven. Uh, if I could sort of relate to this personally, this idea of companionship. I mean, I, <laughs> this is such a trite statement. I really rejoice in the relationship that God has given me with my wife, with Amy. And one of the things that I love about it especially is that Amy enlarges and enriches my life. Um, if I'm honest with you, I'm a really selfish person. It's very easy for me to just be turned inward on myself and what I want and what I desire and what I think I need. And Amy um, is constantly making me think of others. Her gift is hospitality. And if you've been to our home for any kind of a dinner or party, you know, because you can see my wife in her true element, loving every moment of it. Um, and if I could say it this way, she quite frankly makes me a better Christian than I would be on my own. It's painful at times, though. It's painful a lot of the times because she makes me go against the grain of my own nature. Um, but in the end, I'm a better version of myself with her. If I could say it this way, um, I like me better with Amy in my life. And I just, I, I want to share that just as a picture of the joy of companionship, which I, I, I hope you experience, I hope you know. But I want to say this too. While aloneness is what is not good, that's what, that's what God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage is only one way that we defeat this aloneness. And so if you're single and you're grimacing a little bit, like, thanks a lot for rubbing it in, stinker. Uh, I want to just encourage you um, that you can pursue meaningful friendships and companionship in, in the community of the body of Christ and across the spectrum of different relationships. Um, if, I, if I could take you to the scriptures and remind you that David had a very powerful relationship with Jonathan, Ruth, and Naomi. Paul and Barnabas, Paul who never married, Eunice and Lois, Timothy's mother and grandmother who raised that guy such that when the Apostle Paul recognized, saw him, he recognized that this man has been so invested in that he's ripe for leadership. And so meaningful companionship can exist across the spectrum of relationships. And I would also remind you singles, if you're feeling like you're missing something here, I would remind you of this, that your Savior, Jesus Christ, was single. He was single. But we clearly see that he has rich companionship 
in his life, in the triune Godhead, in relationship with the band of disciples, and especially his close family friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whose home he returned to frequently for refreshment and enjoyment and companionship. And so we all need meaningful companionship. But there's a lot of ways we can achieve that, not just marriage. That's my encouragement to you singles. Fourthly here, the fourth purpose of marriage, <clears throat> to be revelatory of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we already have. But part of what is happening in marriage is that we are illustrating in our marriage Christ's love for the church as we exercise our God-given roles within marriage. After the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesians in chapter 5, he returns to this passage that we've already looked at in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes on to say, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. In other words, what is happening in this marriage relationship is illustrative revelatory of what God is doing with the people that he loves. So as we exercise our God-given roles in marriage, we illustrate Christ's love for the church. Marriage is then a gospel message. It is gospeling as we exercise it in everyday life. So let's give ourselves to the flip side of this message. What then are the enemies of marriage? And I'll give credit to uh, Tim Keller for this one, his wording here, and I think he's right on the money. He says that the this, the uh, chief enemy of marriage is sinful self-centeredness. The self-giving character of Christians is one of the truest ways that all of us imitates our Savior, Jesus. Uh, whether we're married or not. Uh, but it, is, it, is, has no more, um, it is no more critical in our marriage relationship. Oneness will never be achieved if we perpetuate this sinful self-centeredness. And this is what I was talking about earlier. You'll see this symmetry in the message this morning. If oneness is the goal, then self-centeredness mitigates against it and has to be overcome. Second enemy of marriage is misplaced intimacy. Again, if naked and not ashamed, this vulnerability and safety and this union, this oneness is the goal, then misplaced intimacy is what mitigates against it. I would say there are a few things within a relationship that are more powerful to either build up or tear down than sexual intimacy. It is the quickest way to affirm or destroy. Um, and it is sexual intimacy is the one aspect that is to be uniquely met by our spouse in relationship. Uh, you know this, but maybe just let me say it a different way. Friendship, encouragement, hobbies, projects, recreation, whatever. A lot of these things can be met by lots of different people in our lives. But sexual intimacy is unique to our marriage relationship. And it is because of that the Apostle Paul commends in 1 Corinthians 7 that we ought to be generous with one another in this regard so that we would not create a temptation. The author of Hebrews says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. When our intimacy is misplaced, whether it is through lust or pornography or an emotional affair or a physical affair, 
We are inflicting some of the greatest harm upon a relationship. Rather than building up, we're tearing down in powerful ways. But I do want to say this. As destructive as it can be, it is not the death nail of marriage. It does not have to be. It does not have to be. That couples overcome it all the time. And if that's the encouragement you need to hear this morning, then I would, then I would want to give that to you. I, I think probably all of us know, we understand, yes, the destructiveness of misplaced intimacy. That's somewhat obvious. But maybe what you don't know is this point here, and that is that all of us, every single person, you are vulnerable to this. That none of us is above it. And the person who thinks they're immune to it is the person who is at greatest risk. Okay? Uh, there's this very haunting passage. I think it's, it's in 2 Samuel. But it speaks of David in his latter years as the king. And it says this. It says that uh, in the springtime when the kings went off to war, David stayed home. And then we find him just a few verses later getting up from an evening nap. And then we find him wandering to the window and gazing upon Bathsheba. And then we see the story folding out from there. But it was this point in his life when he was at a point of position, when he was in command, when he had all of these good things going for him, when he was the most vulnerable. In other words, you don't ever put your guard down. We are all of us vulnerable to misplaced intimacy and have to guard it. So keep your guard up. Thirdly, uh, the third enemy of marriage here, neglect of one another's legitimate needs. Uh, I'm going to read a passage to you from the ESV, which is not where I usually read because I like the way that it renders this one word. I think it does it better. First uh, Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And I like that translation better than the NIV's uh, considerate way because considerate's too thin. You know, I can consider my wife's needs and then say, yeah, never mind. I considered him, so what? (laughs) Understanding means it's come home, right? I get it now, and I need to act consistently. So likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, can I ask you, how many of you have heard of Gary Chapman's book, uh, Love Languages? Should be a lot of, yeah, lots of you. Good, good, good. Okay, we're going to have some fun with this. It's a good book. I'm not sure it needed to be a book. could have just been a chart with a list, bullet points, but <laughs> nevertheless. Uh, it's a good point, and I think it's nice to know that there are really these five ways that most of us feel, either give or receive love. And those ways, if you're not familiar with it, are quality, time, words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, or gifts. And Amy and I were having a conversation about this one time several years ago. I was talking to her about it. We were kind of rehearsing one another's primary love languages. And as I was talking to her about it, it sort of became apparent to me that at one point in our relationship early on, that this seemed to be her love language. And that at a different point in the relationship, it was this one. And at a different point, this one. And at the present point, this one. And as I looked at the whole of the relationship, it seemed that we had kind of cycled through about each one. And she kind of said, yeah, I think that's the case. And then looking back over it again, I said, you know, it seems to me that whichever one was most difficult for me to express at that point in our relationship (laughs) was the one that you needed. And she said, yeah, I think that's right. And it was like this moment of epiphany. 
It's not that she needs one of these or even all of these. The one thing my wife needs to know is that she is my main thing, that she is the love of my life, that she is the most important thing to me save my relationship with Christ, that she is the one. Whichever one of these things communicates that is what she needs. And so if we're broken, it's hard for me to give a gift when I do. It matters, and it says, I love you. But that is my wife's supreme need, is to know that she is prominent in my life. Neglecting one another's legitimate needs is contrary to this meaningful companionship that we are meant to have. Fourthly here, the fourth enemy, disregard to God-given roles. Genesis 3.16 says, uh, and this is following the curse, or this is the curse following the original sin. Uh, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And all the women shook their fists at Eve and said, we don't like you right now. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now this is a fascinating sentence here. I've seen this mistranslated, misunderstood so many times. Your desire will be for your husband. So too many people think this is about, you will have this warm, affectionate desire for your husband, but instead he's going to you know, be this kind of high-handed, grumpy, rule-over-you type of guy. That's not what this is saying here. This word for desire is so often misunderstood, and the next time that we see it used in the scriptures is in the next chapter. It's in chapter 4, speaking of sin, crouching at the door of Cain, desiring to have him. It's not a warm, affectionate desire. It wants to take over him. See, what sin introduced in the relationship between Adam and Eve was a power struggle. She would desire to overtake him, but he would overtake her. It would be this. That's what sin and the curse introduces into the relationship between men and women. And that is what Paul is getting at in the New Testament frequently through the epistles as he tries to show us ways that we need to order our relationships so that the power struggle is not on. And each time he does that, he goes back to creation to show the created order. He does it in, uh, in Ephesians 5. He does it in Colossians. And it's not just a Pauline thing because First Peter addresses it as well. In other words, what we learn about these marriage roles in, in servant-hearted leadership for the husband and submissive and supportive respect from the wife is that we are simply carrying out roles within our human relationship that we see carried out within the triune Godhead as well. What God is asking us to do on earth, he is doing within himself. Michael Reeves, uh, an author of a great book I've recently read called Delighting in the Trinity, said this. He's a Brit, so he's got some colorful language. Well, colorful, not colorful, bad. Interesting, as you'll see. Hmm. He says this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always been in delicious harmony. There you go. You can hear it. And thus they create a world where harmonies, distinct beings, persons, or notes working in unity are good, mirroring the very being of the triune God. And so the enemy here is that disregarding these God-given roles will disparage the greater revelatory aspect of our marriage. 
The last thing uh, is kind of a unique and a standalone here, and I, I wanted to just address this quickly. But I think one of the chief enemies to any relationship, married or otherwise, is unforgiveness. And we find frequently through the New Testament uh, passages where we are commanded to forgive one another. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Matthew 6 tells us in a very frightening sort of way that when we, well, that we will be forgiven to the extent that we forgive others. And if we don't forgive others, that we ourselves won't be forgiven. Shocking. That's what Jesus teaches there. The point being, if we as those who have been forgiven so much by Christ are unable to extend it to others, it's very likely we have no understanding of what we have really ourselves been forgiven and therefore may not be believers in the gospel at all. So forgiveness is something that is to be a point of all, uh, a character trait of all Christians. But I don't want to assume or presume that we know how to go about receiving this. And so I'm going to be really explicit about it. So if you turn your handout over on the back, I've got four steps that I think all of us need to be practicing, especially those of us in marriage, because we will have to give and receive forgiveness often. And here's how we go about it. Number one, we confess that what we've done is wrong. Sounds matter of fact, simple enough, right? Yet frequently we don't do this. We have to actually go and say, I did this and I admit it was wrong. Secondly, and this is often missed, we need to show, we need to express, we understand the impact of our action against the other person. We need to imagine our way into their life and see how this affected them. And when we express that, there is an understanding. Boy, they really do get how they offended me. That helps me towards forgiveness. Thirdly, we have to then, now that we've identified what we've done, express that we're really sorry about that. And use the words, I'm sorry, I apologize, or an expression of true regret. And then finally, we need to use the words, I ask for your forgiveness, which is the first step towards a renewed relationship. And when we practice these things in our marriage or in any relationship we have, we demonstrate a real ability to get past the offense and invite a new kind of way of relating. And I think we all need to practice this, especially those of us who are married. I'll close with Tim Keller's quote, probably my second favorite of his of all times. Marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, but it's also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. I want to encourage you with those words. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this gift that you've given to us of marriage. And it is a gift to all, whether we experience it in a firsthand way or whether we just honor it and affirm it as the author of Hebrews commands us to. We thank you for what it teaches us about you and about who you are. We pray that we would be good students of it and that it would achieve the purposes for which you've given it. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.